0: Welcome to Standing in the Stream, a podcast for and about creative people. I'm your host, John Lane. Originally from Ohio and currently based in San Francisco, our guest today is composer and sound artist Danny Clay. Danny's music is eclectic and stylish, often making use of electronics, found objects, and archival media. He is also an educator and has an extremely creative specialization. He works with elementary school students on composing their own poetry and musical works. In fact, he currently curates Project Object, an internet-based record label of experimental music by kids. Danny's worked with a long list of collaborators, including well-established new music ensembles like the Cronus Quartet and the International Contemporary Ensemble, You can find more about him on his website, dclaymusic.com. Danny, welcome to the show, and thank you for chatting today.
1: Thanks for having me, John.
0: Absolutely. Well, you know, first, uh, and I forgot to mention this on the last show, but I'm glad that I have you now and that we're able to talk because I want to give you a huge thank you, thank you, thank you, for allowing me to use one of your pieces as our theme music, which is a piece called Circling the Interior from your album, Shameless Summer.
1: Thanks for, thanks for using it. It's funny. It's one of those things where it's this piece I made about three years ago, and I've since sort of forgotten about it, and it's nice to hear it being put to good use.
0: Okay, I want to get into some of your current work, some new recordings that you have out, some of your music that's really captured my imagination, and uh, I also want to get into your educational and creative work that, you're, that you've been doing with the elementary school kids. But first... Why don't we talk a little bit about how you got started?
1: Um sure well, this is a really fantastic place for me to talk about how I got started because John, you are actually involved in how I got started in composing. oh wow um because you did remind me you did your you did your doctoral degree at the Cincinnati Conservatory, correct that's,
0: that's, that's- right mm-hmm.
1: And so you were pretty involved about the time that I was in high school. I was in high school in 2004 through 2007. And I think that was probably about the same time you were at CCM in Cincinnati. And I was living in Delaware, Ohio, which is a few hours north of Cincinnati. And so one of the first experiences I had hearing um, sort of creative classical music uh, the the sort of things that I'm involved in today was seeing um, a lot of percussion groups play in the area while I was in high school. Um, I was at the Oberlin Percussion Institute, I think in two thousand five and I thought i I thought I was going to be a percussionist, but I just wasn't nearly good enough. That was a really. <laughs>
0: Really. I don't know, or, or too smart, one of the two. <laughs> yeah, no, not at all. It was, it was
1: all my hands. Uh, I mean, I'm just a total klutz, and I had no sense of physical control. Um, and so that week, this week at Oberlin, was this really important week for me because I was, I was surrounded by all these fantastic performers and um, all this fantastic music, and I was utterly miserable because I couldn't... I wasn't good enough to perform anything. I wasn't good enough as a percussionist to take part in these workshops and things like that. So I found myself just sitting around quietly brooding and thinking about all this amazing music that I was hearing. And I remember one of the evening concerts, uh, at Oberlin, you were playing with, um, Al Adi. Right. And you did this piece, I want to say called the innocence. The
0: innocence. Yeah. That you composed, correct? We collaborated on that piece he composed okay. some of the movements, and then I composed some of them. And this, this piece, what you're talking about, is a piece about wrongful imprisonment and exoneration through DNA evidence. It was, a, it was originally a, an exhibit by Taryn Simon, a photographer, and uh, it was an exhibit at the Cincinnati Contemporary Arts Center. And Al was asked through another um, creative collaborator of his, Michael Burnham, to put together a a sort of performance art piece for this to go hand-in-hand with this exhibit. And so Al tapped me to help him create this uh, thing. So we sort of made musical interludes for this sort of dance, movement, theater, performance art piece. And then subsequently we expanded our our piece to be a concert uh, music piece with some texts that talked about the issue and and this type of thing so uh so that's that that's the piece that that I think you saw there Uh, yeah yeah
1: and sort of not having the context of seeing of, of seeing the exhibits I mean I mean I remember it being explained but just sort of being there in the space and hearing the sounds and seeing your setup, I remember your setup for this piece was just like you had rocks that you were hammering at in one movement and there was this huge singing bowl. There was uh, this fantastic uh, kalumba-mbira right. duo with voices and there was just, it, it, in in about the in about the space of 15 minutes or 20 minutes or however long the piece was, it was just such this fantastic array of ideas and it was all tied to such such a, beautiful little concept that after after seeing that piece that piece set set me in motion I think even even to today that's still one of my favorite uh concert experiences wow watching you do that piece
0: thank you so much that's so meaningful to hear to hear that thank thank you I'm I'm glad that I'm glad that we were there I I I wish I had known this story (laughs) earlier no that's wonderful (laughs) thank you so much
1: no problem. I mean, the, the honor was all mine, and I and I recorded the concert without telling anyone, and on this horrible <laughs> little recorder, and listened back to it, it as like, you know, this mono dictaphone type recorder. And I'm sure I still have the recording somewhere in my <laughs> in my hard drive. But at any rate, going from there, I decided that I was that it was no good to be a percussionist myself, and I just decided to start looking for weird and wonderful sounds to to organize and sort of structure and. I guess that's what led me to where I am today, more or less. There's obviously a lot of steps in the process, but um, yeah, it's, it's always been that sort of element of finding interesting and overlooked sounds in different kinds of instruments and toys and everyday objects and working from there
0: and you also uh, I mean you have a fair number of pieces for piano so is that something that you have some training uh, like as a pianist at all or is that just another thing that you sort of gravitated towards
1: we never we never had a real piano in my house but I've always had keyboards and things like that and now that I teach at a school meaning I'm sitting in front of a piano most of the time I've gotten really good at completely completely bs my way around on the piano I, um, the, all, all the piano music has happened really in the last year or so. Okay. Um, and so, I mean, I do, I, I am familiar with the piano, but I, I'm, I'm just, in general, I would say I'm not a very good performer. I don't have a good live presence. I don't have the technical facility to make it through a piece, even my own, all the way through without getting wrong notes. And in general, I would say I'm, I'm more interested in being on the sidelines and sort of being the puppet master. Yeah. I, I guess.
0: <laughs> let's go back. So after Oberlin, after this experience at Oberlin, then, then where do you go from there and how do you end up in San Francisco? Oh,
1: sure. Yeah. There's, I skipped over a few steps. Yeah, there. that's okay. Let's, let's well, fill it.
0: Let's fill it in briefly just to, so we get your, your, the arc of your journey from point A to point B.
1: Sure. So I, so after seeing, um, you and Al Audie perform. I I also saw about the same time I saw the group uh, Percussion Group Cincinnati perform, and that led me down to the University of Cincinnati, where uh, Percussion Group Cincinnati are they, they're the uh, the resident percussion professors.
0: Yeah, I think we're going to re- rename this podcast the Cincinnati Connection. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I noticed that.
1: I noticed that listening to Pauls it's, 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 uh, <laughs> no, it's definitely
0: a theme. It's not by accident. I mean it's definitely a theme. We've got uh, several Cincinnati connected folks, but uh no, and we talked a little bit about the percussion group Cincinnati's work on that show with uh with Paul Schutte last time, and so just a wonderful environment for young burgeoning and interested musicians
1: oh sure, and there's there's no coincidence that they're that that I'm sure they're going to be mentioned in every Cincinnati related persons uh, podcast right. interview because they're just such inspiring people and so I um, spent as much time sort of stalking percussion group Cincinnati w- while I attended there I was I attended Cincinnati for my undergrad in composition okay and uh, spent most of my time in the basement where the percussion studios are hanging out with percussionists and working with them on quite a few different pieces. And then eventually, um, when it came time to apply to grad school, I, I was really just looking for a different place because four years, um, four years, as I'm sure you've seen being a professor is a long time to be in one place as a student. Sure. Um,
0: you need new, new perspectives and new people. And yeah, yeah, I I totally understand that.
1: Exactly. So I sort of, you know, asked asked around Michael Fide, who was one of my main teachers at Cincinnati, who's a really great composer and we're just a really good friend. He had suggested to me the San Francisco Conservatory. I originally wanted to apply to Mills College because of the big history that they have sure. out here, um, that sort of a big experimental music scene and great professors, but in the end, San Francisco Conservatory was a really great fit I'm glad I came out here and i'm I'm still out here obviously while I was at the conservatory, I studied with Dan Becker, who's a um, sort of a local composer a uh, post minimalist if he would he would Dan would describe himself as a card carrying post minimalist <laughs> composer okay and he is, we're still really fantastic friends. Um, it's really nice. He's the kind of teacher that never considered himself as much of a teacher as he did a colleague. And so I really, I would consider us colleagues now in, in, um, like true colleagues now, which is a really nice feeling.
0: That's that's wonderful. Yeah. So, (laughs) so your experience there was, uh, was enriching and good and, and landed you in San Francisco, which is where you're based now. Did it allow you to make good connections in the city?
1: Absolutely. I mean, it's just, the the cool thing about San Francisco is it's there's a lot of people here, and it's very, very small. So you almost always find yourself running into these strange people. I was just talking to a friend of mine yesterday who runs a venue here called the Center for New Music, which is a really important new venue that's happening here. And it's kind of um, a hub for creative musicians that aren't in school anymore. And we were just talking about how You know, you can walk down the street and you can run into uh, the the famous improvising guitarist Fred Frith, and you can do tequila shots with Fred Frith. And then the next like the next hour, you could be walking down the street and you see David Harrington from the Kronos Quartet, and he, you know, you just stop over and have coffee with David Harrington. It's a really really small community, and it's one of those things where nowadays I feel like I have to pinch myself um, because it's these. I'm just constantly seeing these people that I listened to growing up and you know in rural Ohio listening to a Kronos Quartet CD, I would have never realized that I would know these people after a few years. It's 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 crazy. So, but it's so, all because of the size of the city.
0: Yeah, so it sounds so, like it sounds like you're cultivating a, a strong and cultivating is one word but I I guess also tapping into what What is already a a good and thriving musical especially experimental and new music community in in San Francisco would you say that's true
1: definitely i mean it's not it's one of those things where you you just find like minded people but there is sort of a differentiation I've noticed between um, when you enter a community that's already thriving versus you sort of I feel like you're either entering a community that's already thriving, or you're trying to uh, sort of nurture one from the ground up. Does that right. make sense? Yeah. Every city is a little different.
0: Totally. I, I often feel, I mean, you know, where I live here in, in Texas is a very conservative kind of place, and there's, there's not a lot of this kind of activity going on. I mean, there are small pockets of it in, in the larger cities like Austin and, and Houston and the Dallas area, but on the whole, there's not a whole lot of, you know, experimental music going on, um, in this part of the country. And so mm-hmm. I, I, definitely feel a little bit like a pioneer out here, <laughs> you know, um, yeah. less, less than when you're in a, in a, you know, major city like San Francisco with the history of the West coast, you know, experimental music movement, uh, movements over the years. And I mean, you're definitely in a place that, that values that kind of music.
1: Mm-hmm. And it's 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 part of the it's sort of part of the heritage, and it's not to say I think one or the other is better. In some ways, I think it would be fantastic to be to be to do what you're doing and be sort of um, nurturing this this like uh, what could be a, a wave of you know really interesting music in a, in an area where it's not quite as um, prevalent. I think that that's a really fun and fantastic sort of. Uh, premise. I hope. I hope one day. I mean, I, I. don't plan on staying here forever. I hope one day it, I can either go back to Ohio um, or spend some time in cities where it isn't quite as common. I, and sometimes it's easy to take it for granted in San Francisco. How much. How much interesting stuff is going on?
0: Well, and there you know, those of us that are involved in the new music world, uh, I mean, many of us are academics, you know, so, so for me, what I, my work is, is kind of tied to, to my, my job, which is, you know, teaching at the university. And so in that sense, it's, it's that, you know, that old saying, uh, bloom where you're planted. Right. So I, you know, I never imagined that I would be here in Huntsville, Texas for, this is my ninth year, uh, at this university. And, you know, Uh, So, but I've managed to cultivate a kind of situation for myself where, you know, I really like the work that I do. I've got terrific students and it allows me the freedom to collaborate with interesting people and do interesting work. I think,
1: I think you really nail the idea with bloom where you're planted quote. I think that that's really the essence of, of everything, of, of, of finding, like a happy life, no matter where you are, no matter what your cultural climate is, you you have to find the opportunities and really commit yourself to where you're at and where you're working and use that to your benefit, for that may be. I mean, I think, you know, we, we all, as artists, learn to be adaptable in those situations. And sure. I, I think that's that's fantastic. That's really great advice. Bloom where you're planted a friend of mine right before I started teaching gave me another really fantastic quote that I, that I just carry with me to this day is if you can't get out of it, get into it. <laughs> yeah. And that's, that's probably one of my favorite quotes. It's not, it's not, it's not, it doesn't sound very Zen <laughs> quite, but, um, I think there's a, there's, there's a lot of connections that can be made between those two things. And I, I I've been dealing that in with my teaching, you know, it's the sort of thing where, I could have easily made it sort of a really boring teaching job and been sort of an unenthusiastic half committed music teacher, but it's been enormously fun and rewarding to take all the things that I love and just go all the way with it and just try to make um, try to make the most out of out of everything in this tiny little school you know and try to think as big as possible with my you know class of sort of 60 or 70 music students.
0: Sure. Well, um, we could we could talk for hours about um, our, our journeys and our sort of philosophy, but I want to make sure we take some time and get into the meat of some of your work. My first introduction to your music was a piece called Three Fantastic Houses for speaking percussionist and computer. And this is a piece where the... The text, the spoken text, are these fantastically bizarre poems by some fourth graders in um, Shreve Elementary School in, in Ohio. So this is one example of that, that wonderfully creative work that you've been doing with elementary students. I, I don't think you didn't work with these students directly. Is that right? These poems were much older but is, yes. this, is this sort of what got you started in, with that idea that, that working creatively with, with young students?
1: Absolutely. I found, I found this book when I, was, when I worked at a library in high school, and I sort of grabbed a copy of this book of poems by kids. And I think by the time that I got a hold of the book, the kids that were writing these poems, even though they were elementary schoolers at the time, they they are older than I am. They're definitely older than I am at this point. But um, this this book from the '80s just captured just this incredible array of really strange poems that that these kids had written in elementary school. And I have plundered that book from cover to cover and written probably I think over the course of a few years, I've written maybe ten pieces using poems. Um, yeah, it's from fa- that book.
0: it's really interesting. These the texts have kind of a Dream logic uh, slant to them. They're just really fantastically bizarre um, poems. But but I but this kind of work. So that was the if that's the first piece that you did of that kind. You know, I noted that you have collaborated with um, in educational partnership with like the San Francisco Opera, the International mm-hmm. Contemporary Ensemble. I mentioned in the intro about your project Object this mm-hmm. experimental music label. It must be incredibly rewarding work to have seen this creative spark that started with this piece expand into what is becoming how you're working these days in your edu- in your um, teaching.
1: Yeah. It's been really nice to see how one very small idea can sort of be, can sort of grow into all these different sort of multifaceted projects um and it all just like it all came from asking questions um sort of about the process that went into the piece after i ran out of i mean i essentially ran out of poems to use from this book and the other books that i were finding of children's poems just didn't quite resonate for me in the same way and i thought that it would be really good it would be really interesting to s- start looking for you know kids that are living nowadays and getting them to write poems specifically for projects. So um, I worked with this ensemble this group called Nonsemble 6 based here in San Francisco and we taught this really short little writing workshop at the at this this sorry we taught at a class at this writing workshop called 826 Valencia um and we had five kids, and they all wrote this tiny, tiny little opera. And then from there, we staged this. I wrote the music and set these these little uh, texts, and we staged this little mini opera. And so from there, it's this sort of thing where I um, was just asking questions like, how could I do this differently? How could I do this now? How can I sort of adapt the parameters that went into this? In, that went into a piece like Three Fantastic Houses and make it more relevant and more applicable to mm-hmm. kids today.
0: Can you talk a little bit about your your teaching position and how it allows you to work with these students?
1: Essentially, I'm the general music teacher at a private school in San Francisco um, called Zion Lutheran School. It's a small uh, Christian school. And my responsibilities are to teach general music there is a curriculum book um, but it's pretty loose it's called the I think core knowledge curriculum and I see the kids I have kindergarten through fifth grade and I see them twice a week and in general I'm pretty much left to my own devices in terms of how to teach this curriculum so I try to schedule every few weeks some sort of composition related project and I try to work with my kids as much as possible on actually creating scores, listening to sounds and ordering sounds and getting them to think creatively about the sort of cause and effect of different ways of making sound. Hmm. That's sort of my main, my main priority. And it's, it's also the kind of thing you, you teach what you're familiar with, right? So while I will teach them vocal technique and I will teach them um, a little bit of theory and I'll teach them you know, recorder and stuff like that. What I'm really, really passionate about is composing. And so I, you know, would love to, I, they, you know, I sort of impose on them, whether they like it or not, the, the idea of composing and creativity. And I, and in the end, I feel like that's something that I didn't get much of in music class, the idea of just creating, um, instead of, deconstructing thinking about music it's easy i mean ev- anyone can teach theory and uh, we all have to learn theory in one way or another but i mean music is so much more fun than that and i feel like elementary schoolers just want to have fun so why can't yeah. we all have fun making noise right
0: I, I could imagine that that this kind of work with that age group of kids would totally capture their imagination i'm I, I want I don't want to steer the conversation too much away from this uh, topic, but just to give people that are listening an example of the kind of creative work that you're talking about, I'd like to play a little bit, uh, play a clip, from 27 Overtures after Ludwig von Beethoven. Can you set up this clip for us, what we'll be hearing?
1: Absolutely. Um, this was sort of the first piece that I did working directly with kids, the first piece that I did... Um, with with real local kids, and we were all sort of contributing towards this new piece. Basically what happened was I went into a, this was before I had my teaching job, I went into a classroom, a third grade classroom, and I played for th- about 30 kids, actually 27 kids, hence the name, um, I played them the opening bars of uh, Beethoven's great fugue it's one of his last string quartet pieces it's sort of one of his longest most complicated uh... works that people still um, sort of pine over today right but the the opening bars it's just these um, just these really big octave chords and so i played this little excerpt for the kids and they all i asked them all to draw what they thought the music looked like we talked a little bit about the whole question of how do you draw sounds and how do you, how do you capture sounds visually a little bit beforehand, but in short, they, um, all 27 kids drew their own version of Beethoven's great fugue. And from there, I took all of these little tiny notational scraps. Some of them were just squiggles and some of them were these really weird drawings with arrows and some, there was a dinosaur on one, (laughs) um, of course. And so I, I, I put them in a sequence that I thought would be interesting, and I should mention that all the drawings were on a four-line staff, like a string like a string quartet would read from. Okay. And then and then I I had a group that I'm that I'm friends with, Friction Quartet. This was actually um a project I had to write a piece for them, and I decided instead of writing a piece on my own, it would be much more fun to have um, a bunch of tiny world premieres of. Of music by kids. So this was the, this was the idea. And yeah, so they read through all these drawings very, very quickly. And this is the end result.
0: Okay, Here, here it is 27 overtures after Ludwig von Beethoven. And the performer is the friction quartet. You got it. Okay, and that's the example of 27 overtures after Ludwig von Beethoven. It's uh, really terrific stuff, Danny.
1: Oh, thank you. I mean, I really can't take credit for any of it, which is the nice <laughs> part.
0: Well, that's, that's all part of the fun, though. That's part of the fun. So talk to me a little bit. Uh, so this Project Object uh, net you're calling an internet record label, are these all works by your students? Or are these from various collaborations that you've had? Uh, outside of your your teaching position,
1: it's kind of all over the place. Um, I'm and I'm still, to be honest, I'm still trying to figure out exactly what project object um, is going to be, what sort of the end results going to be. At some point, I had a a few days where I just got really, really amped up about it, and I wanted to make sure that that people could hear all these different projects that the kids were creating so I so I threw them all up on SoundCloud and I decided to call it project object um uh, essentially what it is is all all the sounds are made are made by kids or at least created by kids and every sort of little collection is a different a different lesson plan I guess that I've that I've done with with a group of kids they're not always my kids at zion lutheran school sometimes as you heard with the uh, twenty seven overtures um, they there with a different classroom that was at a public school um, really all over the place in general the only the only rule of project object at the moment is that elementary schoolers create all the sounds
0: hmm. and <laughs> and but a lot of and in, in some I've just been exploring some of these pieces. It seems that some of them are like the twenty seven overtures. They're pieces that are scores that the kids have drawn, and that you have professional musicians making the, making the recordings. Are there any where the kids themselves are making the sounds?
1: Yes, and I that's one of the things that I've had so much fun with in the last few years is sort of exploring the sort of flow chart of composer to performer to audience and that sort of I really have I've had a lot of fun playing around with who's doing what in these sort of lesson plans. Um the most recent one I've done was the kids created the notational symbols. So I had classes create um symbols for different sounds in their classroom they invented a uh, notation for say the sound of pencils clipping together or the sound of them banging on their desk and then what i did was i took all those symbols that they created and sent them off to different composers different professional composers and the professional composers then wrote pieces these adult composers wrote pieces for kids for, for very specific classrooms and the kids performed the scores that were written just oh, for wow. them.
0: So is that, um, uh, is that the piece music for desks?
1: Yes, that's one of the pieces. Uh, Phyllis okay. Chen. Phyllis Chen. Uh, based in, yeah, based in New York, a really wonderful composer and performer who I who I did a similar project with um, for one of her festivals with my with my elementary schoolers. She wrote a piece for a third grade class here. Wonderful and 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 that's also I mean that's not to say that the kids the kids also got a chance to compose using these symbols, mm-hmm. but um it was really I thought it would be really interesting. i had a I, I had this experience with um after we made all the symbols and we were having fun making all these sounds i had I had to ask that stupid question that everyone asks, um but is it music? And a lot of the people said. No, this was a second grade class, I think. Uh-huh. Uh, the second graders said no, and I asked why, of course. And I think they said something like, "Because, because other people don't know what it means." It was a really great answer. <laughs> it was a really, it was a really surprisingly wise answer. It wasn't that it was just noises or something, but it uh-huh. was that um, nobody else can do it. It's not <laughs> reproducible or something. And so I had to take that as a challenge, and so I by asking all these professionals to write music for them. I think they really got the idea that wow, other people other people can do this too. This is this isn't just something that we do in
0: class. Great. Let's let's listen to a little bit of music for desks. And there we have it, music for desk. And and the performer performers here are the students.
1: Yes, this is a third grade class at Zion Lutheran that, School.
0: That's wonderful. So such creative work, Danny. You should be commended for, for all the work that you're doing with these uh, with these young students. In Texas we have a pretty strong arts support in the schools. We're we're fortunate to have lots of funding and, and support for music and, and art in the schools. Not the case everywhere in the country. And, uh, so you should be commended for, um, for doing such innovative work with, with young people.
1: Well, thank you. Um, I mean, I'm not, I'm not as probably as not, uh, not as well read with sort of the creative arts funding and things like that in schools as I should be. Um, in the end, I'm, I'm one of my main priority is just to make as much using as little um, resources as possible. I mean I, I've always been, I guess I do that in my own music, make trying to make a lot from a little and um, while you know obviously having as much funding and support from an institution is ideal, in the end I, I love the idea that that I can go into a classroom of kids and we can make something that's totally fantastic Without, without needing a fancy, uh, you know, fancy smart board or without needing the coolest, like, state-of-the-art instruments and things like that.
0: Sure. Okay, let's um, let's switch gears now and, and go back to your work, and uh, let's talk about... I've got a couple of things earmarked here, that uh, albums and pieces of yours that captured my imagination, but maybe before we get into that, we can talk about what you're working on currently. Looks like you've been quite active. You've got some new commissions coming up with the Third Coast Percussion Group and uh, a chamber orchestra called the Elevate Ensemble. I, I noticed these on your website. I, I also noticed that you have a new piece for pianist Sarah Cahill and uh, a number of new recordings. Is there anything uh, that you're really excited about that you'd like to, to tell us about?
1: I'm really excited about a uh, an album that I have coming out. Usually when I do albums, um Unlike most sort of classical composers, I'm they're really electronic albums, and I'm and I'm creating all the sounds myself, and um, sort of sequencing them, and and doing sort of whatever I want within this big uh, album framework. Mm-hmm. I have a release coming out on this UK-based label called Hibernate Recordings, um, where it's called Ganymede. Where I have um, been doing a lot of experiments lately with uh, turntables, with record players, and this is sort of this is about a about 70 minutes of music that is made almost exclusively on turntables. Um, some of it's using turntables like a percussion instrument. I've been really interested lately in sort of taking a turntable without a record on it and creating all these sort of grinding sounds and. Preparing them in different ways, um, and I've also done some experiments with getting my own my own records made with different weird sounds on them, and uh, sort of playing them with cups and needles instead of the record stylus, and making all sorts of weird groaning sounds out of them. So this is coming out at the end of January, and um, I'm really excited to just see what what people think about it. It's one of those things I've. Sort of created without really considering what it might mean to other people, <laughs> and uh, mm. I'll be interested to see if any if anyone is interested in it.
0: Yeah, look forward to hearing it. Thanks. <laughs> One of the a recent recording of yours that really captured my imagination was your album called Archive, and uh, not only the album, but then as I you know I sort of followed the down the rabbit hole as you do on the internet. Um, mm-hmm. I followed mm-hmm. your page to the the Alien Rec label that's that's re- that released archive, and this was 2014, so it's re- recent. And uh, so this record label is a, like a French record label, and they do electronic music, but it's it's highly curated. Uh, it seems mm-hmm. like a, a highly curated collection of albums. They make handmade copies of each one with the with the CDs sealed and numbered and each album sort of represents a point on this imaginary map and it just goes uh goes way beyond what we would normally think of as uh, just a record label putting out records they're actually curating this very special um collection and uh if you, if you don't mind I'd like to play a little bit of well the track is 1172012 okay
1: um sure uh, Matthias, I'm actually I probably shouldn't even try to pronounce his name because <laughs> I don't know how. Um, the curator of Alien uh, Records is. It, it's worth noting that that this label is run by one person, and so I think that's why why there's such uh-huh. a meticulous um, sort of creative vision there. When you're dealing with um, which which I'm almost always working with. Um, with labels that are that are essentially one run by one person and they just really wanna share sort of um... uh... all these different artists that they like and encourage them to create more work that i think that's why you can account for such such a interesting sort of unique thoughtful vision as you as you mentioned with alien (laughs) um... when you're putting out sort of fifty copies i think my cd for them was 60 copies or something like that, that every single one of those is handmade and every, I just, you get this feeling that there's just so much care that goes into every single release. Yeah. Um, That's,
0: that's what it would appear for sure.
1: That's why, that's, that's what I really admire about, about alien. When I created, my album for alien i was asked to create an album and given sort of a spot on the map which to be honest didn't really do a whole lot for me i think i picked a spot by the ocean of the imaginary map just because i thought ocean an ocean is a good source of imagery and things like that Um, but i ended up sort of using all these old collections of sounds that i had from different dates and i'm sort of try my best to date material as i as i generated and it ended up being much more of this sort of collection of diary entries from over the over the span of quite a few years and so there's really not essentially whatever date the album the the track title is 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 when the sounds were created and often the day that they were finished hmm. um, usually these are day long projects that sort of just emerge Quickly.
0: Well, let's take a listen. This is one seventeen twenty twelve from Archive. So that was a, an excerpt from archive, uh, beautiful, haunting, uh, sort of ambient piano, uh, with electronics, uh, reminds me a lot of Harold Budd's music. I don't know if you know Harold Budd's music at all, but it's very reminiscent of that sort of ambient, um, sound world.
1: Oh, sure. Thank you. Yeah, that's very nice of you.
0: The, the other piece that I the, of yours that I'd like to talk about, if if you're open to, is a piece called Glacier Park. And that one was released on Unknown Tone Records.
1: Um, yes, that was a, a few months after Archive was released. Okay. It's been a pretty busy year.
0: Yeah, I was going to uh, say, I think it was the same year. So um, Glacier Park, Unknown Tone Re- Records. And you describe this album as going back in time to mix two Sonic formats, tape and digital. So we get this very nostalgic sound for, at least for people of a certain age of the Nintendo game boy melded with the sort of organic warmth of real to real tape. And then you also mentioned that this, uh, or this album was inspired by your grandparents' 35mm film from their from a vacation to Alaska. Uh, yes, yes. So so can you talk a little bit about how you made this music?
1: Sure. It sort of developed over the course of about a year. Um, I got really interested in the Game Boy for one reason or another. Maybe I maybe I discovered the Game Boy that I that I used to play back home. Um, in Ohio, as a kid, and I discovered the whole idea of chip tune music, where um, with this with this uh, cartridge for your Game Boy called LSTJ, you can program the Game Boy to make um, electronic sounds. You can basically turn your Game Boy into a synthesizer, and it's this whole genre of music um, that's almost entirely sort of. Based on the music that you would have heard in Nintendo games, it's a lot of it tends to be really bouncy, sort of poppy dance music. And since I'm not really a bouncy, poppy dance kind of guy, I thought it would be interesting to um, to try to use it in in a more ambient way. It, in the end, it sort of became a challenge to myself uh, to see if I could make something like sort of haunting and sad out of a Game Boy. Uh, make make sort of an ambient Game Boy album, <laughs> and working working with that, I started. To, I, I discovered this box of photos, like you said, uh, of my grandparents' Alaska trip from the early '90s, and this really would have been the same time when they went to Alaska. It would have been the same time that I was playing Game Boy, which I thought was. Just kind of a maybe. Maybe I was just looking for justification, because uh, it is sort of a strange. It's a strange idea that, for whatever reason, my all this Game Boy music I was making reminded me of of my grandparents in Alaska. I think, like you said, this is sort of a nostalgic, a nostalgic sound for a very specific generation of people. And I don't know. Maybe so. Maybe definitely transferring it to tape. Uh, gave, gave it this sort of interesting uh, sort of quality. This, this, I guess I can't really think of another word other than nostalgic right now. But, um, and maybe there's something to do with the purity of, of these Game Boy uh, tones that felt sort of uh, arctic to me or something. Mm. Uh, but in, in, a, in any case, for whatever reason, I felt that there was just this strange connection between um, Alaska... And and the all these Game Boy sounds. What I actually did, uh, and I was using um, a little bit of both. I mean, I have a few different tape machines, but a lot of what I was using was actually cassette loops and um, cassette cassette players. So I would create um, these different, you know, cassette loops. And I was also thinking about the fact that, guess CDs in the early '90s were sort of the main medium for listening, but cassettes were much more much more widely used back then, and I thought there was something interesting about taking these two uh, sort of artifacts that are indigenous to the same time and, and combining them. I guess that's why I was interested in transferring Game Boy to, to tape over and over again.
0: Hmm. Um, let's listen to a little bit of Glacier Park, and the, the excerpt that I'm going to play is actually the video uh, so this was actually the thirty-five millimeter film. Uh, this is the sort of home movie from your grandparents that you put with the uh, with the sound.
1: Actually, uh, no. Oh no. <laughs> actually, okay. There's a very, but it's really really funny because my my friend Mark m- uh, Mark who runs Unknown Tone Records also his grandparents also made a trip to Alaska. I think it was a few years earlier. I want to say it was. Maybe even a decade earlier, but he was the one creating uh, this video and the artwork for it, and so he ended up finding all of this archival footage from his grandfather's trip to Alaska wow. that he paired with this with this with this release. And in the end, there was something even more beautiful about that. About to uh, viewing Alaska from these two different uh, sort of vantage points um, and both thinking about our grandfathers and things like that. Yeah. In the end, I think it's even there was something even more magical about the video not being made from my grandparents' images.
0: Yeah. Well, let's take a listen. This is Glacier Park. And we're back. Uh, absolutely beautiful, haunting, fascinating uh, music. I just love that uh, that album, Glacier Park. Okay, we're going to wrap up our conversation here with Danny Clay. And Danny, uh, to close, maybe you can uh, talk about how you view the creative life and maybe if you have any words of encouragement for those of us that are on that path.
1: I'll do the best I can because... It's, it's, I feel like the creative life means something completely different to everyone. For me, what it really means is looking at where I am right now, um, looking at my immediate surroundings. Like you had said earlier, bloom where, bloom where you're planted and um, figuring out what is the most exciting, meaningful, possible thing that I can do with what I have around me. And sometimes that means literally what's around me. Like right now I've got a pile of slide whistles next to me um, and, you know, my Game Boy and that's it. Th- the idea that I could make something meaningful out of those two things is, re- is really important to me. Or it could mean sort of what community you're in. The idea that, uh, you know, next door is, you know, a classroom full of kids that I could potentially create. Some very meaningful, interesting work with. Um, for for me, it's about looking at what I have and the possibilities of what I can what I can make from it. It's hard. It's hard to give advice uh, when you're you're never quite sure. You know, it's kind of like for me. I feel like I've always got my nose to the canvas. You know, well, and, and I never really yeah. have the time to step back.
0: <laughs> no, and and I think that might be an important thing to say. You know, for those of us that that are looking for inspiration we find it in the work a lot of times just to hear the voice uh, behind that work gives gives us a perspective of where they're coming from but but i think a lot of people are finding inspiration just in the work itself
1: in the end it's just all about doing things and um taking a look at what you have and not finding excuses um just making things and as soon as you start making things you'll want to make more things and you'll get more ideas and um, you know, work leads to work. The other thing that I really believe in, especially nowadays, is that giving yourself limitations is is very very useful and very helpful. Uh you should never feel like you have to do everything all at once, you know? Um baby steps in in the art of uh making things is okay. Um it's great to have big visions and big big ideas. But really, you realize those ideas one step at a time. And giving yourself limitations is a huge, huge way to develop that, to yeah. develop those muscles. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Okay, well, thank you, Danny, for being here today. I really appreciate your insight. And it's been wonderful to chat with you about your, all of the work that you do. And I just want to wish you the best of luck. And I look forward to working with you soon.
1: Yes, you too, John. Thank you so much.
0: And with that, we conclude Episode 2 of Standing in the Stream, Conversations with Creatives. Again, I'm your host, John Lane. You can follow me on Twitter, at John Lane, and you can find the show on john-lane.com or on Facebook. Simply search for Standing in the Stream. We're also up on iTunes, so feel free to leave a review and or rating. Thanks again to Danny Clay for our chat today and also for our theme music. You can find him online, dclaymusic.com. I'll be back next time for more conversations with creatives. Thanks for listening.